I have moments when I, I'm still baffled and questioning at the ability of people to justify such a heinous activity, which is the incarceration, brutalization, and murder of sentient beings. I, I feel I'm living on another planet, and I'm sure you've heard that before. As a vegan, do you ever feel like you're living in a parallel universe, aware of things that many others don't even seem to notice, let alone acknowledge? I'm Chrissy Benson, host of the Vegan Posse podcast. We talk with vegans from around the globe who, like you, are living lives of integrity and compassion with an eye toward justice through their personal stories. You'll come to see that you're not an outlier. In fact, you're part of an entire posse of individuals who aren't just keeping the peace, they're creating it through their food choices and beyond. You won't be saddling up, but you're in for the ride of your life. Welcome to the Vegan Posse. Hey, Posse. Have you heard of the Innovative Therapeutic Model Internal Family Systems, or IFS, also known as parts work? Well, I'm a trained IFS practitioner, and I can help you heal trauma, evaporate creative blocks, and increase your sense of self-love and inner harmony. I offer free consultations too. Visit my website, christinemelaniebenson.com to find out more. Thanks guys. Now on to our episode. Today, the Vegan Posse welcomes Dr. Claire Mann. Claire is a vegan psychologist, speaker, author, and animal rights campaigner. She created the term Vistopia and has written numerous books, including Vistopia, The Anguish of Being Vegan in a Non-Vegan World, Myths of Choice, Why People Won't Change and What You Can Do About It, and Communicate, How to Say What Needs to Be Said, When It Needs to Be Said, in the Way It Needs to Be Said. She has numerous programs and runs leadership training more widely for organizations wanting to create a world to which we all want to belong. She is a well-known speaker at vegan festivals, podcasts, and webinars all over the world. Claire, welcome to the Vegan Posse. Are you ready for the ride of your life? <laughs> Ooh, should I be scared? But um, I like a challenge, as we all do. <laughs> there. Excellent. Great attitude. <laughs> I expected nothing less. So you're, you're calling in from Australia, which is where you live now. Is that where you're originally from? No, I'm, I'm actually from the south of England, um, a place called Plymouth, which is probably about a three-hour drive out of London. And um, my family, or my extended family, are all there now, I guess. Uh, sadly, my parents are no longer there. And uh, But I have siblings and nieces and nephews and that sort of thing. And um, I've been in Australia over 20 years. Oh, wow. And what what brought you there? Love. <laughs> <laughs> Do tell. Which is usually the reason. Um, I have to say, of course, I lived in London for 22 years before then. And um, went to see the streets paved with gold back in the 1970s. They weren't paved with gold, but it certainly opened up a lot of opportunities. And uh, and I met my partner, Brendan, in, in London, and um, we came over here. We decided where to live. And so we've we've lived over in Australia. We've also lived in New Zealand, and we went back to the UK for a year. Wow. How, how did the two of you meet? Were you very oh, young? A, oh, that, no, not. You're very sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't meet my partner until uh, I was 40, actually. Really? And, um, yeah, it's quite a nice story, to be honest, because I was working in a British university. Um, I, I don't know if I said that, actually, in my 
bio i think you get to a certain age don't you and you sort of forget chunks of your life almost. <laughs> <laughs> and yet at the time it's so important i had a wonderful time i was a university lecturer for 10 years in london and had a full tenured position where i also was able to teach at bath and london university and also ben gurion i did quite a bit in israel and in europe and as guest lecturing and there was a student there, a mature student, who had just come back from cycling around a very remote part of China. Now, that would have been in the early 1990s, they would have gone, or late 80s. So they went to areas as two Westerners that people had never actually been. And apart from the fact both of them were very tall in the areas and the villages they went to, people were very uh, short, but they obviously stood out. It was a very unique experience. So he, this young man, David, was one of my students. And the mature students and some of the um, lecturers would have coffee afterwards, after some of the lessons we had done. And there was this, this, David said to me, gosh, you must meet my friend Brendan. He's, every time I just cycled around China with him, he said, for, for three months on the panniers and things. He said, every time you say something... You, you would get on so well. You seem to question absolutely everything. <laughs> and everything's like, well, maybe, what about X, Y, Z? And so the long and the short of it, he tried to introduce us for several years. Well, that several years turned into eight years where Brendan would come from living in Australia or New Zealand to London, and I would be working in Europe. He would go back to Sydney. I would come back to London and I would go somewhere else. And it took us eight years to meet when we met at the guy's <laughs> wedding, actually. And um, and then things sort of moved from there. So perhaps some things are meant to be. Wow. So eight years before you ever even were introduced to each other officially. Absolutely. And he definitely is the questioner. He was the person that actually ultimately, well, ultimately, very quickly, actually, once it was uncovered, um, influenced my whole existing family, the immediate one, to become vegan. Really? Really? <laughs> Wow. Okay. Well, let's, let's backtrack a little bit. Um, when, when did you yourself first go vegan? 16 years ago. Yes. Wow. Though so I had been vegetarian for 30 years before then. And like so years. many wow. vegans, we say, as you know, if I knew back then what I know now, I would have been vegan. Um, I believe we're born vegan. I believe as Gary Yorofsky says that our first ism is speciesism when we're given the fluffy lamb to play with and then mum serves up lamb chops. And it takes us sometimes a while, perhaps for a child to realize, of course, by the time they do realize that being part of a group, being accepted, being odd, this is normal, this is necessary, takes us a little while to, to battle through that. And then um, ventured along happily as a vegetarian and, and as most vegans know, vegetarians, you know, don't fit as perhaps a few fussy eaters, but there's no real problem. They just decide to exclude something from their diet in terms of the, the society. However, when one becomes vegan, of course, eating is just one of the behaviours. And um, Brendan and I were living in New Zealand and we built an off-the-grid house there. And we had a life there for a while and we used it as a really nice base. And I started to come across certain animal cruelty issues that felt compelled to investigate. One was pig-dogging which was the brutal use of starving dogs to go out and then hunt pigs. And I remember New Zealand can be very cold. And I think it was minus seven degrees Celsius, so way below the freezing point. And these dogs were howling and I went up to investigate and they were all been back in cages. And I remember holding this dear animal's face in my hands 
He had been scored by a pig. He had been shoved back in the cage and his paws were sticking to the bottom of the cage. He was so cold. And I wasn't a vegan then, but I was a human being. And I got all the animals taken away. But of course, the prisoner cells were all cleaned up and all the animals went back. I started to ask questions. Is this just an odd situation of a neighbor behaving badly in the country? Um, and then one day we woke up and there was this terrible crying of cows and they were crying and crying and crying and crying. And it went on for 30 hours and then suddenly it stopped. And obviously we invest, tried to investigate before, but their babies had been taken away, of course. Something that we don't see when we live in cities, we hear about it. And, but it went on for 30 hours. And then it, this eerie science, which I always will remember. And so we started to see that. And um, when we came back to Australia, we're due to emigrate back after about four years. Brendan being who he is said, this can't just be New Zealand. <laughs> and he started to investigate. He looked at a lot of videos and he said, I'm sorry, we're gonna have to sit down and watch these. <clears throat> and we did. And we watched about pigs and cows and sheep and um, animal testing. And my partner and I and the dogs became vegan on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> so you all went vegan at the very same time, the same day, we the did. same moment, essentially. The immediate family. And um, yeah. extended family are a little bit more difficult, as we all know with our families. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I'm curious, how did going vegan affect your perception of other human beings? Oh, that's an interesting question, isn't it? One that I hear people talk about all the time. It's interesting because I hear a lot of people say, and I don't like the word hate. It's a very powerful word. It's not a word I use, but they people use it and they say, I hate humans. They are so awful. If only we could get rid of these people. Now, where have we heard that over history? <laughs> we'll just sort of get rid of that group, that nationality, this group, and then we'll be fine not realizing, of course, that each of us has the potential for, for great evil and each of us has the potential for great good. You know, there's, there's infinite possibilities of why people do things. Um, I have moments when I, I'm still baffled and questioning at the ability of people to justify such a heinous activity, which is the incarceration, brutalization and murder of sentient beings. I feel I'm living on another planet, and I'm sure you've heard that before. But I'll tell you a quick story of perhaps through my training, because although I trained as a psychologist, I also trained as an existential therapist. And because I always felt like that, you know, it's, it was I came from quite a questioning family and, and the home was interested in the notion of choice and what is our part in doing things. And so I had that sort of lens that I'd been taught in many ways. But again, I remember being in New Zealand and we had one dog with us at the time, a rescue dog, and we took her to the um, pet resort, it was called, but it was really just kennels with lots of dogs playing. It wasn't a fancy place, which probably makes the guardians feel better than the actual dogs. They just want to be with other animals. And the lady there, when we went to pick Dazarps, Dazan, she was called, which of course is an existential term for meaning being there. She said, would you take another dog? And we said, well, actually, we probably are looking for one because Daz would really like some company of her own species. And she said, it's the only dog I've ever had who has actually broken out of this establishment. And she's a golden retriever, not a big, strong dog. She was so desperate to, to get out of the enclosure when her, I'm not going to call the person owner, although she used that, their guardian came. 
she was terrified of him. Um, and we've investigated a little bit, and it's this dog is living in a friend, my close friend, who's the neighbor, and this dog is not being looked after. Would you? And I said, certainly, we'll investigate. And so we went around to his house, the man, um, an angry, raging individual who had had a stroke and somehow, and I'm not jumping the gun, I don't think, I got a little bit of history on him, a real sense of his manhood had gone. He was disabled in some way. He couldn't use his limbs. And he worked on the on the docks in the shipping sort of area. And as I went in, I'm talking to you as I am now, perhaps I moderated my voice a little bit because he was a bit of a bloke. And he immediately looked at me, he said, don't come here with your fancy voice, a woman telling me what to do, even though I just asked a question. And I realized kind of what I was up against. And as he raised his voice, this beautiful dog who we called Minka dropped to the ground and wet herself. And she started shaking in his presence. And I remember in answer to your question, how do I feel about other, the non-vegan world in many ways, is I felt absolute murderous rage in that moment. I wanted to grab hold of him by the neck and have him up against the wall. And in an instant, it changed to the complete opposite. It was the most extraordinary experience. And I thought, what on earth has happened to you to make you brutalize a golden retriever? <laughs> and so it was that moment of that juxtaposition between the two that it was shocking. And I thought, what has happened? And so, I went on, we went on to actually, my dear partner, Brendan, went sort of, actually it was quite funny. He pretended to be a bit macho and sort of went in and said, oh, no, don't listen to the girls, you know, come on, let's get this dog off your hands. He just wanted the dog out of there. And I just, we laugh at that now, of course. And we brought her out and it took her, I thought she was 15 years old. She was two years old. She was hung over and bent over her body oh. and her little paws had never been walked. And she was kept out in the freezing cold in the New Zealand winters with, it has horizontal rain there. She was, she's always been terrified of, she lived till 15 by way on, on a vegan diet, uh, very old for a golden retriever, but that taught me something. And actually I've written about that, I've written an article, which is on my site. Um, so how do I feel? It, mo it moves around a little bit. If, as soon as I feel my rage and discomfort, I realize that, you know, it's cause, it's my pain and my suffering, my empathy with, with suffering that I'm looking for a target in the moment. It tends to be a little bit momentarily these days, not because in any way I'm advanced in that way, but I think that's not really what's going on here. You know, all of us have been duped. All of us have been born into probably a death culture. Um, it's right on our plates. It's right in front of us. And, and that's why I love um, Will Tuttle's work so much because he, he talks about that being the gateway is you know our own temple our own bodies being used as graveyards and um we'll talk about a few other things in a moment but i'm, I'm really getting concerned about the effect of metaphysically also what's happening to us in terms of how this is then really being acted out in the world at this time right that makes that makes a lot of sense yes and that's that's a really powerful story and as far as this I, I view it you talk about the the lens that we see through and i relate to that a lot in fact that was a name i contemplated for this podcast was the vegan lens you know how does how does being vegan affect how we see the world yes. and i i use the term parallel universe a lot for how how i feel you know like just living in this parallel universe that 
we're aware of this this whole universe of suffering that the rest of the world doesn't even seem to notice, let alone acknowledge. And so how do we how do we walk around in the world like everything's normal because we have to function, you know, we can't just collapse into a heap that doesn't do us any good, nor does it do the animals any good. And yet it's not it's not normal it's not right it's not okay so so I, I know that's what your work has been about is helping people figure out a way to do that and live live happily but also productively and ethically um so you had already been in the psychology field for quite some time before you went vegan is that right oh absolutely um, okay so i would have been Gosh, I'm just trying to think. <laughs> As I say, you're a very long time here because I've been in London yeah. for 20 years. Actually, I was a mature student. I left home, and I'm not had left home. I left school at 16, actually, and went into banking, of all things. My banking, really? Oh, that interesting. That was not a career for me. <laughs> oh, interesting. But you are very entrepreneurial and business-minded. So that doesn't that doesn't make no sense to me, but that's interesting. Well, I was very young and, you know, I was a remittance clerk at the time, but I just realized the um, the structure, the um, <laughs> systems, the lack of creativity, the, <laughs> you know, just in the south of England. And I, I laugh at it now because it was sort of the late 70s and um, there was one guy working in this little sub-branch of this bank. And, you know, he was the guy that was being primed to be the assistant manager and the girls <laughs> had no look in, you know, it was really, but, um, but actually, I, can I tell you a story of the little um, start to that is, again, which I, I bring to bear with the vegan movement is coming into our power is, you know, when we stand up and we say no to something, it is enormously powerful. We look at what's happening in our world at the moment and we think we've got to galvanize all this support and there's got to be a lot of us. When we say no, and we refuse to move, it's amazing how that brings an energy around us. And um, and I was working in this bank, I remember, and I wanted to be a shorthand typist. And I was quite entrepreneurial right back then. So even whilst I was at school doing my sort of basic exams um, and deciding not at that stage to go to university, I didn't really have a family that did that at the time. I went later. And I wanted to be a shorthand typist. So I, my father paid for a course, which I did in the spare time. My mother taught me to type as I was doing these exams and went to work in this bank. But he really wanted me to be something else, occasionally do a bit of typing. And but that wasn't really what I wanted to do. So I remember walking into Mr. Way, he was called. He was a man who yelled and screamed. And he was such a bully that within about three months, I actually lost my hearing. There was like the eustachian tube in my um, it actually was swollen up because he used to yell at me. And I realized very early on how powerful the body is in responding. And I went in one day and I said, Mr. Way, I, you said I'd be doing a lot of typing and I'm not. And he barked at me and said, if you, young lady, if you don't, if you don't, <clears throat> sorry, I did this bit out. Young lady, if you don't like the heat, get out of the kitchen. And I was just overwhelmed and I went home and I spoke with my mother and she said, I think you need to find another job and then go back and address that issue. So the long and the short of it, I found a job that was my first entrepreneur called um, Ron Peachy, a lovely name, hey? and really was creative and, and gave power to individuals. I got that job. I went back into the office and I said, Mr. Way, I want to talk to you. He said, I haven't got time. I said, well, I just want to let you know the heat has become unbearable and I'm leaving the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> In that moment, it was a, it 
you know, my mother taught me to be assertive, not aggressive. You just have to speak your truth. And it is our job to educate other people how to treat us. Well, I think that's an interesting example because the way you went about it seems very wise to me. You didn't try to change him or impress him. You went out and took care of your own business and then returned and were able to speak from a position of strength because you'd already taken care of finding another position. You knew you were set and you spoke to him and just informed him <laughs> what was happening. Yes. I, I, I love that story. Yeah. And maybe the lesson there is, you know, we cannot change other people. We can lay the feast out in front of them. But when we change ourselves, we change the dynamic because people have to react differently. And sometimes right. that's just literally by changing the words or the phrases that instead of fighting back. And, and yet at this time in our history, of course, people are very emotional and there's this collective emotion. But just in to finish off on that thing is I, I have certainly been very entrepreneurial and I used to run 16 month leadership and communication programs. Um, I've worked for a lot of very big organizations and I've worked all over the world. Um, there was a time when I realized that and made a choice um, before actually, actually funny enough, before becoming vegan probably around about that time is not working for the big corporations because I saw so much corruption. And also I got to a stage, I proved I could do this in one sense and it, it, we were running some really good programs. Um, and yet I thought, well, this isn't good enough for me. I don't want to train people to ask their bosses for more money or get more power. <laughs> I want to empower people to make to address the real issues in our world. It's not causing unnecessary harm. It's quite simple. Right. Really. Right. So when you were studying psychology, um, what what field did you study or what branch of psychology were you drawn to? And I ask yeah. because I'm not sure if I mentioned to you that I'm currently in graduate school for clinical mental health counseling. So oh, I'm, wow. I'm definitely interested in hearing what your path was. Fantastic. No, absolutely. Well, I it's interesting. I look back on it now and I just observed. It's funny how our parents influence us of course not funny it's quite um and I had I really did have great parents sadly neither of them are still alive my father died only 18 months ago he was 97 oh. and um, he taught me a lot about speaking up and um, just standing in my power as my mother did um but there was a little secret we had is he he came out he was in the second world war actually he was in the d-day landings and he came out and he used to get up very early and he used to drive a lorry a long way down to the south of england and the sun would be coming up and he's driving a lorry of actually beer all the way down to uh, different breweries a lorry um, is a truck like a delivery truck yeah a big no not a big truck a big articulated lorry um, well I don't, I don't know i don't know that i've heard the word but i don't know precisely what it means so it's also a little small truck. It's a great big long. We we have it wasn't as oh, big as like an eighteen wheeler kind of truck. Probably about twelve wheeler, but you know maybe it was a little <laughs> okay. He was wow. taking that down. But yeah. you know, my father always said you have to live in the moment. So he would get up early and start that journey, and he would see the sunrise in the south of England in Cornwall, and you know he would make it a day, and he would you know bring the joy in there, sort of thing. But there was a little, he used to get up at sort of five o'clock. So if I heard him get up, I used to get up and I'd have a breakfast with him and he would be in the wow. kitchen and he'd have the gas stove on. You know, I'm painting a picture of poverty, which I definitely wasn't, but we didn't have a lot, I have to say, but I never felt for a moment that there was any lack at all. Um, but the gas stove would be on and the house, the room would be warmed and I'd spend that time with him. And then I'd dip back into bed and no one knew. 
<laughs> like, oh. So I wonder if I bear, sort of got an impression there that actually it's a man's world or men have far more exciting things to do. They're out in the world. Because bearing in mind, we're talking about the 19, end of the 1960s now. So, but it was a nice feeling. It wasn't, um, you know, my then my sister would get up, my mom would have breakfast, we'd go to school, those sort of things, which was equally enjoyable. But I think I was moving in that sort of area. And so I'm always interested in psychology, what made people tick. There were always those philosophical questions. My father was constantly seeking the truth. And what was this spiritual journey we we're all on? Um, and so when I moved into psychology, a more masculine arm of that sort of came forward, which was organizational psychology. Uh -huh. I could work in the grown up world of business, you see. And, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's so that's what I, I trained. Actually, I did general psychology and then I went to London University and did uh, it was called occupational psychology there. It's, it's organizational in Australia. Okay. And, but it prepared me and allowed me to go into organizations and work with things like culture change, team building, um, leadership areas. So I worked as an organizational psychologist for many years and, um, and very successfully. And then I started to realize that CEOs and senior managers were coming in and going, thank you, Claire, for coming in and looking at performance management. But by the way, my life's falling apart. <laughs> but they got this grown-up organizational person to you know, not be too soft to talk about these issues. And I realized they wanted me to take them on a journey I just was not prepared for. Mm. And so I, it's a long story. I know we haven't got time to perhaps talk about this of why I just decided on existential psychotherapy, but I went and did a, another master's in um, existential psychotherapy and counseling for which of course I had to be in weekly therapy for the whole four years. Oh, um, wow. So you did a whole yes. second degree. A third degree. A third <laughs> uh, degree. Yes. Oh my word. Wow. Got the third degree. That sounds a bit sort of <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That sounds there. very harsh. Yes. <laughs> and so um because then it for me it had enough robustness, but with a dose of passion. And it wasn't being prescriptive and normative about uh, pathologizing the human condition. It was basically saying there is this struggle. Now that has really helped in trying to understand the vegan's journey and the coming out of the Garden of Eden, so to speak. And so those sort of issues sort of sat well. So for many years, I continued doing organizational work and I set up a practice and I started speaking out in those areas and, and talking around those areas. Um, and it, it kind of made sense really. It fitted in with who I was is to empower people, to that people can change. It's not a, we have all these terms that we, you, you'll notice it, I guess, in your studies at the moment you know, anxiety, depression, OCD. Um, we don't have these things. They're useful words to categorize what, quote, professionals want to talk about. But, you know, who wouldn't be anxious, suicidal, you know, obsessive, depressed, you know, knowing that the madness, firstly, of our speciesism. <laughs> and, um, but they're pathologized. And I, I see, and I'm sure you'll see it in the future, and if, or if you're not, if you're seeing clients now, is people heave a sigh of relief and they go, ah, I've got depression. That's the reason why I'm like this. And I say, well, where did you catch that from? Is it like catching the cold or something? And they, they say, well, that's, oh no, I have this condition. And I say, you know, none of us have anything. We develop a response in relation to life, either internally our challenges and our memories and our struggles or externally. But actually you're not a victim of that. And you're so much more, you're all these infinite possibilities. 
which doesn't really sit well with psychology because psychology wants to be terribly prescriptive right and, uh, right help people I, what they have you know <laughs> yeah yeah well i've i've found it an interesting field you know just thus thus far i trained before i started doing my grad school program i trained in internal family systems therapy mm -hmm. um like parts work are you familiar with that Yes, absolutely. And, and what what one thing that really appealed to me about um, internal family systems or IFS therapy is that it's very non-hierarchical. It's, you know, the therapist is simply facilitating questions, a dialogue between the client and her parts. And so all of the answers are coming from the client. It's not a client presenting with, you know, unloading a bunch of symptoms and then receiving a diagnosis and being told what to do. Instead, the therapist is simply asking questions. So I love it for that reason. And then when I first heard about existential therapy, that really <laughs> just lit me up inside because it just, it just makes so much sense. I love that it doesn't sugarcoat the human condition. And it seems to very very aligned with Buddhism and the Buddhist philosophy is that, do you, do you find that to be the case or do you, you know, know much about, I mean, you seem to know a lot about a lot of things. So I imagine, you know, a lot about Buddhism, but I'm wondering how that plays into your practice or your just personal philosophy. Yeah. Well, I'm always, I always shy away from anything that is like a uniform or a, a title, mm -hmm. a Buddhist, yeah. a Christian. Yeah, understood. Uh, sure, you, sure. Understand, you understand that. And, and we could question, you know, humanism, <laughs> you know, calling ourselves. Right, you know, right, right. Yeah. So I know it's like these, I have a love-hate relationship with these labels because sometimes they're, they're handy, they're unavoidable in some ways. And at the same time, they're so inadequate and limiting. So yeah. anyway, anyway, go on. Yeah. And yet we need that social shorthand, don't we, too? Right, we never, right. You know, you wouldn't have a word for anything and then the, exactly you know, we can create, you know? <laughs> right, right, um, right. but it does limit because it immediately stops us looking outside that and and, and that's what the existential view is this sort of constant not immediate jumping to conclusions about what something is looking at the subjectivity of our lives the meaning making the um and ultimately the choice and responsibility so you know in many ways can we not choose? You know, we, if we decide not to choose, we're kind of choosing not to choose. But what I liked about it is, and I guess this is, I don't actually know a lot about Buddhism, really. I'm not too sure why. Um, I certainly meditate. <clears throat> but it's that um, taking responsibility for everything we do. So everything, I always say to people, have you ever noticed when we've got a problem, we're always there? And so what is our part in this that we are contributing to? And sometimes it's through our thoughts. If we're angry at the world and we don't like the way it's going, we are adding into that pot called life. And there, as you know, there, there's a lot of studies through Transcendental Meditation, PeacefulCities.org, that show that thoughts really are things and they affect the outer world. And so, however, we're in this human condition, we're not perfect. You know, I get angry, I get upset about things, I rage at the non-vegan world. Um, something you said earlier, how do I feel about non-vegans? It's not so much non-vegans, people that continue to, to just look at their own peace and liberation and ignore that of all the other living beings, is relationships that used to work no longer work. Mm. The intimacy's gone, the 
this barrier is there because this is great big thing in the mm. middle. But but so you've studied existential existentialism yourself. Is that resonating with the type of practice you might want to be developing? Or? I yeah yes quite quite possibly. Mm. I mean I haven't I haven't taken um, any courses specifically in it other than you know I've I've done a lot of self study prior to starting my grad school program. But it was only fairly recently within the past few years that I learned that that was an actual um, therapeutic practice practice. You know, I didn't know that there was such a thing called existential therapy, but I mean, I've always had that sort of existentialist spirit and leaning. You know, I remember when I was, when I was very young, just coming into that awareness that I was someday going to die and just being, you know, devastated by that and horrified and cried for days and saying to my parents, how can you, how can you live with this? And how can you not be upset all the time when we're going to die? And, you know, and they just, they were, they were sympathetic at first, but then, you know, reached a point where they, they didn't know what to do with me. And um, so, I mean, I've definitely always just had that proclivity of, you know, asking the big questions and, and how do we exist with this awareness? Um, so yeah. it is, it I is, guess, sorry, no, go ahead. And, and yet to, to take the flip of that from the existential perspective and the meaning making, you've got writers like Camus that says, don't ask why people commit suicide, ask why they don't. Right, <laughs> right, right. Well, there's, there's a Camus quote that I came, stumbled across a few years ago and he, I forget the context in which he said this line, but to me, it, it summarizes the animal rights movement perfectly because the, the quote was, our task is impossible. So let us begin. <laughs> nice. And I just remember thinking, yeah, that's, that's it. You know, we, who knows we're, we're up against such powerful forces and just such you know, dominating systems of, of culture and thought. And, and yet we have to, we have to try. And so we can't let the, you know, the impossibility or the, just the daunting nature of this task, you know, dissuade us. We, we have to just show up and try. So along those lines, when did you start focusing your psychology work in the realm of veganism? Well, that was when I became vegan, actually. Really? Was, right then. So there was, there was wasn't much of a lag. I was very, I, I was, I actually became, well, we, we became vegan before we knew the word existed. Really, <laughs> I love which that. Is quite, I love that. Like, I say that to young vegans now. They say, you know, oh, because everyone knows what vegans are. I say, no, you've got to realize how things have changed. Mm -hmm. And um, because I thought a vegan was one of those, you know, extreme vegetarians. <laughs> so I didn't really think about it much, to be honest. And mm -hmm. so we became vegan that moment. And I remember looking at Bren, I thought, can we live like this? You know, are we going to die? <laughs> Which is sort of quite funny now, because I did know a lot about nutrition. I'd been vegetarian for all that long. I reached out to an animal protection group, which is the largest one in Australia now, which is Animals Australia. And there were only seven people there, but gosh, did they punch above their weight? That's a phrase they used to use. We say in this country that when... Animals Australia meets a farmer, they quake in their boots. And we say that because they do get criticized for being an animal welfare organization. I can assure you they're not. When you go to the Middle East and go to your slaughterhouses in some dreadful underground place, you are not a welfareist. However, what their understanding is, is they work with society of some of the languaging and realize that if we can bring things to the table, you know, they've been around for, <clears throat> a fair bit of time but there's only seven of them 
So I put my organizational hat on and I rang them and got hold of someone now I have such regard for, Lynn White. And I said, Lynn, what can I do? You know, and we're about the same age. <clears throat> Sorry, but <clears throat> I'll let you edit that. We're about the same age. And I said, well, I'm an organizational psychologist. So they all came to Sydney. I got a room. <clears throat> I got a room sponsored and we ran a whole day on communications. And I remember, and this is the power of thought. I remember saying to Lynn, Lynn, how much do you need to really grow this organization? And she said, we need about 5 million. And Brendan said, well, that's not much. He said, and she said, well, where's it going to come from? And he said, well, wherever it is now. <laughs> <laughs> and we just put that thought out there. Didn't think more about it, but did some, you know, and I got used to sort of being with them. And I realized, came to know obviously what vegans were and whatever. So I started working with them, speaking out about live exports, factory farming, greyhounds, elephant trophies, and standing in the streets. And people then approached me and said, you know, I want to see someone, but I only want to see a vegan because I know what my issues are about, or I have other issues, but this is always going to come up, you know, eating with family and things. And so I thought I'll call myself a vegan psychologist. And a lot of people are vegan psychologists or therapists, but they don't call themselves that. And because they feel it will affect the rest of their work. When we absolutely focus on what we've come here to do, the area, universe rushes or call it universal energy rushes to sort of fill that and so that's how it happened I will just tell you about the story about the five million though <clears throat> and I was at home one day gosh less than a year later maybe and somebody rang me from the World League for Protection of Animals and they said have you heard the news and I said no they said the CEO from who set up Kathmandu which was an outdoor um, sort of walking and outdoor store big one she sold her company and she's just given animals australia five million dollars oh wow <laughs> exactly five million it, it was i think it was five million because there was even a show made about it, it amazing was a, like a documentary wow. little saying wow and there you go so were we instrumental in that no we just we spoke our truth they spoke their truth they set the intention um and so I called myself, I really became an activist at the same time and, you know, and put myself out there and um, and then became a vegan psychologist. So I do see <laughs> non-vegans. I don't know how they find me because if they search for me, they probably would find a lot of other things, maybe through referral, but right. very, few, very few. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a good point about the language not being identifiable, you know, not too long ago. Like I spoke a few, a few weeks ago with, um, a vegetarian historian and she was talking about the challenge of even gleaning from historical records, whether people were vegetarian because they didn't use the word, they didn't have the word. I mean, you, you may know that, um, at a certain point in time, they referred to vegans as Pythagoreans because Pythagoras required that of all his followers. But, and you know, this, this historian, her name is Avery Yale Camilla and she is um, she lives in Maine and she was talking about, you know, all these people who were vegetarian, but you could only figure it out by reading about what they said about what they ate, you know, and then eventually put it together, but they didn't have the word. So when you and Brendan first made that decision, what, 
How did you articulate that decision between you without using the word vegan? What did you simply decide, okay, we're not going to eat products that come from this animal-based agriculture system? Yeah. What we wanted to, we talked about not wanting to do, to use animals in any way. Mm. Because the reason I became vegetarian when I was 17 is I just read about a slaughterhouse. And mm. I read about someone t- saying what happened. It was actually Bob Geldof with the Boomtown Rats. I don't know if you can, any of your listeners are of the vintage. They would remember that. <laughs> um, but, that was, you know, he was related to the Live Aid? Yes, correct. Yeah, yes. That's, that's right. And um, and so that's sort of, so my journey into vegetarianism was because of the horror of animal cruelty. And I have to say, I didn't look into the you know reproductive secretions of animals, the eggs and the fish and the um, they're not reproductive secretions, of course, but cheeses and milks and things. But I was treated for eczema and during those sort of 30 years. And I was told by a medical herbalist, she said, well, you're just allergic to dairy products. And so that came out of my diet. And so mm. I guess there wasn't a lot of that in my diet. So mm. I was, you know, semi sort of you know in terms of the mm-hmm. dietary thing but i certainly wasn't whole foods and mm-hmm. that opens up a whole new um which i think is what bill will talks about true veganism you know unless if we're going to be the vehicles for change um you know I, i'd like to say i've always had a good diet i think i probably have very, in terms of what is relative but i remember doing t colin campbell's course which i believe you've done yourself i have yes yes yeah and it's transformational, isn't it? It's just it really is, yeah. And it's it's yeah. funny for me just to think how far my diet has evolved. So I remember when I first I, I've always been a pretty conscious eater. I've always been interested in nutrition and health. But when I first went vegan, I remember at a certain time I was at a at a vegan conference at Farm Sanctuary in upstate New York. It's a big animal sanctuary, and they had to. Um, something called the hoedown. And they asked us to write down some goals, personal goals for after the conference. And I remember writing down um, that my goal was to eat more whole foods. And it's just funny to me to think back, that wasn't that long ago, that was maybe eight or nine years ago. But to think that I needed that as a goal. I mean, these days I buy hardly any processed foods. So it's just funny to me how even even on within the realm of veganism, there's always so much room for discovery and growth. Did you try any particular dietary approaches? You you did the T. Colin Campbell course, so that well, must I have been part of it. I only did it a year ago, but um, I oh, started okay. growing my own food yeah. sort of thing. And really? Always, absolutely. So, you know, just forayed into <clears throat> just the vast amount of food that your diet improves dramatically because I'm afraid to say this quote because I may get it wrong, but it's um, there's something like 8,200 known fruits and vegetables we can eat. It's something ridiculous number. Yeah. And then always fun. It's always funny, isn't it? When someone says, what do you eat? (laughs) What don't you eat? You know? Right. um, Right. Or when people say, oh, I've never tried vegan food. (laughs) I hear people say that. (laughs) I say you've never eaten oatmeal or an apple. (laughs) It's it's quite extraordinary. But the live food, I mean, and you probably know yourself, is when you're preparing food, organic food or food that's from your garden, the energy as you're touching it is completely different. If you buy it from a store and it's been in storage for a year or something, you know, 
um, apples before they leave New Zealand are about a year old, you know. And, and wow, oh, really? Yes. Yeah. And um, are they okay. refrigerated or how are they? They take the oxygen out and they're held in some sort of nitrogen sort of. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, wow. And they have no taste, of course. And, that's um, so interesting because I love, I love apples, but I only, I only can, I can only eat good apples. I can't bear a mediocre apple. And I swear for the last six months, I've not been able to find tasty apples. That's so right. that's very interesting. I, I didn't know that. <laughs> it's quite extraordinary. I think you've, um, I recently picked up some from a, a third generation farmer who I'd organized in the area that I was living, a collecting from there and, and distributing it. Uh, I'm no longer near him, but we were down there recently in the Blue Mountains, just outside Sydney. And he, I've got a lot of apples here and I could sit and eat an apple, whereas before I've not been able to, the bitterness of it, the acidity. And of course they're organic apples, not sprayed with things. Mm -hmm. And he's built up, that soil's been built up over decades mm -hmm. and it's completely different. We've gone so far off our path, haven't we, in many ways. and just the, you know, it's, it's in, I still find it amazing of when I perhaps walk past a store and there's a, a butcher's there, terrible word for it. I can literally feel I'm being swept away. The energy is pushing me away. And I, I look at how people have cut themselves off from their knowing and their sensitivity to genuinely believe they're nurturing their families with the, the suffering of others it, it when I can actually walk past the shop without literally being propelled away from it physically yeah yeah <laughs> two two stories of my my own along those lines there's I live in Nashville Tennessee where um you know animal agriculture is very in your face and there's a shop um in my neighborhood that has a big sign outside that says pasture raised meat <laughs> it just cracks me up the the term it almost implies that there's this field of plants with just you know ribeye steaks growing on them or something you know it takes it makes it takes the animal out of out of the whole picture and then when i lived in new york city which was where i lived prior to moving to tennessee i used to commute through Grand Central Station and you walk down this long tunnel where there are all these all these advertisements. And for a period of time, there was this huge poster of this graphic side of animal flesh. And it was advertising a butcher shop. And then it had this slogan that said, our butchers are artists. And I just remember walking past that every time, just feeling repulsed. And then at a certain point, I decided, okay, I'm not sure if I'll be able to pull this off, but I'm going to do a little, a little activism here. So I, so I carefully, um, carefully cut, cut out a few letters from construction paper and got some tape and got some glue and got some very, got up very, very early in the morning one day because Grand Central Station is never empty, but at different times of day, there are fewer people. So I went, went past that sign and I replaced. Can I stop you a moment? Yes. It just yeah. cut out completely then. So, oh, uh, yes. Oh, okay. You said, 
I walked past, I carefully cut out. I don't know if you just wanted to say it again, just in case it didn't. Go of through. course. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you for um, yeah. <laughs> alerting me to that. So I, I decided I'd do a little activism and I cut some letters out of construction paper and got some tape and some glue and got up very early in the morning to arrive at the station when not many people would be um, going through there. And so I replaced the first three letters of that word <laughs> artists with the letters S-A-D. <laughs> Sadists. <laughs> and I knew I knew they wouldn't be up for very long because obviously they have all kinds of security. And that was that was probably close to a decade ago. So that was before cameras were everywhere. I, I don't think I would have been able to pull off that feat in, you know, in the present day, <laughs> but at the time I was, I was able to, you know, get that, change that statement to our butchers, our sadists. <laughs> and then I went, I went, I went through Grand Central a, a few hours after having done this, just to see if, if the modification was still up there. And it was pretty funny because when I approached that hallway where the sign was hanging, I couldn't quite see the sign, but I could see people walking past it. And I remember seeing one yes. person glance at the sign and then glance again, <laughs> like, no, surely that couldn't be saying what it says. And I thought, yes, okay, at least well one done. person. <laughs> so yeah, it is, the messaging is, is fascinating. So when, when did you first conceive of this idea of Vistopia, you know, this, this syndrome that basically all of us vegans just end up experiencing. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting, especially as we've talked about words, you know, are words helpful or not. I came up with the word and the necessity for the word because needed to say what it wasn't or to minimize the experience. And it really arose out of, I was working in the city in Sydney at the time and doctors and <clears throat> sorry I have to keep coughing <clears throat> a little early so I was working in the city in Sydney and doctors and psychiatrists would send people to me largely because I was just in the center I guess and I started to hear stories from people I firstly people would come to me and they'd say I've been told I've got an eating disorder and they said but actually I just don't want to eat animals Okay, so I had a few moments that people didn't actually know I was a vegan and you can imagine their delight till they actually found out. Ah, ah. So, but people were also being sent to me, maybe they, some of them knew I was vegan, some didn't, but they came with three different um, disorders, that was the labels, is that I was being told that they either had eating disorders. Now, some vegans may have eating disorders, but it's certainly not related to the fact they don't want to brutalize animals. The second one is they had adjustment disorders because they didn't want to celebrate Thanksgiving or Christmas with their families and eat the same things. So therefore they were disruptors and not fitting into society. And the third one that was really concerning to me when I really knew I needed to do something, clients were being sent to me that were told that they had such slow self-esteem that they were watching video footage of slaughterhouse treatment of animals because they were punishing themselves, they were self-harmers. And I was remember being full of rage at that point of, not only is this person with a soft heart become aware of what's going on, they're now going to be demonized that they've got the problem, that this is normal. 
And in many ways, what a great invitation because you start to see there's lots of other things in our world that actually aren't quite as they <laughs> would be told they are. And I think we're seeing that over the last few years. But um, so I realized a name needed to be given to stand up to these authorities and to give someone a yardstick against which they could go, actually, yes, I'm not on my own. This is normal. And actually it's desirable because if you see what is happening to animals, um, in testing labs, in military, in religious services to get onto our dinner plates. If you don't have a reaction, there's something wrong, <laughs> as you know, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. So <clears throat> it was very important to me to come up with a word and utopia and dystopia sort of were in the background, that dystopia of the dark and cruel and competitive and evil world. I guess, in a utopia being an imagined world of joy and freedom and liberty and compassion. And I realized that vegans, as vegans, I think we're living in a vegan dystopia, is actually we walk down the street and we we don't see somebody having a cup of coffee. We see the dairy industry and babies taken from mothers. We don't sit on a leather couch. We see an animal's skin. We don't see glamour <clears throat> fashion items or makeup without looking at the animal testing lab. And it's almost like coming back from a war that everybody thinks is over and you can still hear all the guns going off and you're saying, but no, we're in the middle of a war. And they say, no, you're, you're neurotic, there's something wrong. And so there needed to be a word. So Vistopia, um, the anguish of being vegan and non-vegan, where was the word I came up with? Wonderful. And how long did it take you to write that book? It didn't actually take very long, actually. I'm afraid to say 10 weeks, but it probably 10 was weeks. Me. Wow. The moment I got the energy mm-hmm. and I sat down and, and just wrote. Wow. So bearing in mind, Amazing. I have done a lot before then, but it just it right. like I channeled it from somewhere. And I think incredible. I hear a lot of people say that when they're in that creative process, it yeah. comes from somewhere. And, well, my, um, I had a novel that came out last year and it took me a lot longer than 10 weeks, <laughs> but that, but I have had that experience of things coming very quickly. And it sounds like those ideas had been simmering and had been, you know, coming together in your consciousness for quite some time or your subconscious perhaps. And then they yeah, finally absolutely. found release in, in words. So did writing that book help you? sort of clarify and crystallize your own vegan journey as well? To a large extent, it was saying how I felt, but also how the countless people that I'd spent time with, hundreds of people, um, individually or through events and workshops, that they said they were feeling. So I wanted to, um, you know, it started off with a a chapter called A Stranger in a Strange Land, (laughs) which is something you've highlighted today that you suddenly don't belong this parallel universe I think you called it right and then what used to work no longer works is our relationships or the things we used to do going to the theater for some people was a great treat now it's like you know I find so many active I say activists so people that want to be part of the change in some way they say well it almost seems like entertainment it's you know it's it's not okay to do that. But, and I encourage people to say, you need to bring this joy back into your life and this creativity and these ideas. But I find, and myself included, if I'm doing work that is contributing to creating a vegan world, I can enjoy those other things. But in and mm-hmm. of themselves, perhaps when I did them before, they were just, that, that would no longer work for me. So mm-hmm. 
I think it's very important to bring joy into our lives as well. And because we're also adding to this pool called life rather than waiting for the one day when everyone wakes up and then we'll all have permission. I don't think it quite works like that. Right, right. Because even once we, you know, solve the plight of non-human animals in our food system and, you know, scientific labs, there there will always be some sort of suffering happening, you know, so we, we can't all put our happiness on hold all the time indefinitely until there's no more suffering because... That would mean we're no longer in this human existence, which, yeah. you know, your exist- existential training, I'm sure, you know, <laughs> but <I think laughs> identifies also, that anxiety as sorry. part of our lot. Yes, go ahead. And Absolutely. Identify. But it also, you know, are we trying to act like act like gods and goddesses here and say that the ultimate thing is no suffering? <laughs> you know, if you think back through your life and I could certainly three, it's through our suffering that mm. there's this like thing that comes out of this. It's mm. often through those dark moments of bereavement or loss or illness or psychological struggle, emotional struggles or abandonment that we learn through to be something else. And that's for us all to struggle to, to grapple with, isn't it? It's, what is this? Right, thing right, right. Why that meaning here? making, I suppose. That's right. Yeah. Well, and, uh, what what meaning have you made of all of this? Well, that's that's an interesting one. <laughs> that's a big question. <laughs> Anything it's a that very big question. Away. And for me, I want to leave the world in a better place than I arrived. <laughs> and I I think someone said to me yesterday, you know, nobody. We've had a few big losses lately of of well known vegans dying. And I will say on this show, actually, I don't know her personally, but I do know her daughter who, who developed the cruelty-free stores here. Um, this was a lady who ran Dogs in Peru, I think it's called. She recently died. She was actually stung to death by a swarm of bees. Hmm. Um, how can we make sense of that when someone's right. doing so how much ironic, yes. And then you get this, I'm not even sure why I'm mentioning that, maybe because it's so, hmm. it's asking those questions. How is this, what, what does it mean for somebody come in and do such why are we here we're here for so little time right um, i have to say i'm um i listened to david ike quite a bit those were there were some days when people would go oh my goodness and they've been doing that for 40 years so i'm not too worried about that but he says something and i find all my stress goes in the moment he says at the end of the day we're, ex- we're consciousness having an experience and so i try to you know with all the changes and the losses and the the, the lack of insurance we policy we have yeah. on our, our lives and the decisions yeah. we make we don't know what the other choice would be if we went down a different path right um, right so that yeah takes, it's, so i haven't it's, come to an answer and i i think i would be very smug right. if i did come to an answer and all i think i would be duping myself into right. thinking i've arrived this is what it's about but uh, that's what I was saying. This the friend I spoke to recently when we were talking about these losses of people. He said, "You know, really, I think a big thing is we don't want to die with the music still inside of us." And I thought that probably makes sense. <laughs> with the okay, with the music still. Oh, and so we want to let it out. We want other people yes. to hear it. We want a song yes. in our heart. Yes. yes, yes, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, as as far as the, I definitely relate. You know tremendously with the concept of dystopia. And I've certainly experienced that for me, it's very interesting because on the one hand, I carry that 
No question. And that's in large part what motivated me to start this podcast and to, you know, to do a lot of the things that I've done in the vegan realm. And at the same time, I also feel so incredibly fortunate and lucky to have stumbled onto this vegan path because I, I feel secure in my body. I feel confident in my health. I feel ownership and empowerment over my well-being. Yes, anything can happen. I know I could be hit by a bus tomorrow. I could be stung by a swarm of bees, you know, and, and, and I recognize that. But generally speaking, I feel I feel a sense of ease and just, you know, well, well-being. And again, I just, I feel so lucky and so fortunate. So it's, it's very interesting to me because I really carry both simultaneously. Um, do you, do you relate to that at all? It's interesting. And um, I saw certainly being vegan, I feel the ease. I feel my values are aligned with my actions. Right. And with comes the I can sleep at night I don't feel I'm right. struggling in the way I did perhaps in my earlier years and there could have been other reasons for that youth and um, lack of experience but it, it gives enormous meaning making and I know when I veer away from this and perhaps I'm invited to do some different work it feels heavy and I want things to feel light when I you know there was a poet that once said there's yes and everything else is no <laughs> and I that's our intuition of course it's really linking with mm. that so no I think it's enormous meaning making to get one's health one's responsibility for our health and um, totally and to listen to your body and have faith that the body can heal itself which it can right right and to work in alignment with that because that's the first point of change I think and what we put into our bodies and how we where we get our food from and how we live Right. Um, so enormous meaning making there. Um, it's interesting having had both of my parents die. My father only 18 months ago. My mother died 26 years mm -hmm. ago. And how that changes things. For me, I, I won't say I've just been orphaned because it doesn't feel like that. Mm. But a sense of what was that all about? Why were they here? <laughs> mm. you know, what effect did they had on the world I know the effect they had on me and I often feel a lot of what they have said to me comes out you know is it this grand relay race that we are all having choices to do good live in love or fear you know and add to that and, and that's the dilemma we have to live with I guess is what is this really all about <laughs> but right. meaningfully alignment with your values to try and not cause unnecessary pain um, or to act and not cause unnecessary pain. And I say unnecessary. Um, my mother used the example. She said, Claire, there's only one thing in life that you, if you live by this, it's pretty good. She said, don't cause unnecessary pain. I said, well, what's necessary pain? And she said, well, imagine you're going out with this young lad and you get to a certain age and he has to marry you and you say no. He's probably that he's going to feel some pain. But do you change your view? Do you change your decision and marry him? Of course you don't. So your actions are when they come up against other people's expectations will cause discomfort. She said, but it's causing unnecessary pain, which is when it really doesn't need to happen. And I've tried to live my life like that, I guess. And I'm right. still learning. <laughs> right, right. Yes. Yeah, it's so interesting. So so tell me this, you know, these past three years, as as you've alluded to, have been very, very interesting. And for me, when I went vegan, 
you know, which was in 2011 when I, like you, I had been vegetarian for quite some time and then started learning a little more about those other industries and made, made that leap. And for me, when I went vegan, it really raised the question of what else have I not been seeing and what else have I been lied to about? And it led me to, like you mentioned, question everything and, you know, these past three years, I've, I've found a great deal to question. And yet I've seen a lot of people in the vegan community, probably most of the vegans I know who've gone the opposite direction. It's as if their questioning ended with questioning animal agriculture, perhaps because that was all the questioning they, they could handle and in everything else, all other ways they wanted to be as conventional and part of the group collective as possible. That's, that's the only sort of logic I can bring to it. But what's your, what's your perception of that phenomenon? The people who continue questioning into the, you know, post-veganism and mm-hmm. other realms and the, and the ones who don't, or maybe exactly. that's a well, false, maybe that's a false dichotomy. I'm, you know, oversimplifying, but I think you no, understand I don't, the question. I don't think you are because actually the, um, the definition of dystopia, the third stage is exactly what you've just said. The first stage being the anguish we feel about the systematized cruelty towards animals. And then when we tell people, instead of them changing on the spot, which they should, because <laughs> of the horror, yeah, yeah. Um, this trance-like collusion with a dark and dystopian reality they don't even know they're part of, which is much bigger than the slaughterhouse and the testing lab. But then the third stage, which a lot of vegans that you have observed over the past few years have conveniently ignored, which it says, if I didn't know about all this with animals, what else don't I know? And then you're called a conspiracy theorist. It's actually in the definition. I have been harangued on social media saying, you're a conspiracy theorist. I said, but it's actually the definition. Oh no, but that's not my dystopia. Well, make up your own word. It's, <laughs> it's quite funny, but isn't that interesting? Because that third stage, as you've rightly said, you're thinking, well, how was it possible for me not to see this right in front of me? And the curious mind, of course, has to ask, well, what else, what am I not seeing? And I ask myself that all the time. What am I not, what don't I know? How can I break through this? veil of these layers to say what else what else don't I know because if all we've got is a hammer every problem becomes a nail and I see so many vegans so to speak or you know we've seen a total collapse in Australia really of the vegan movement really um and it's in what what way in what way um festivals events um activism stalls um, World Vegan Day, which um, my dear friend Mark Donadue, um ran for several years. It was one of the biggest events in, in the world, actually. It was, I think 24,000 went to the last event. But does that expectation, there was always something going on. And now when I see any images of activism, I don't even know the people. There was a National Animal Rights Day recently. I actually didn't know it went on. And wow. there were like 15 people there in Perth. And a client of mine mentioned it to me and I thought, wow, how did that change so quickly that I, you know, it's almost as if a whole layer is gone and a new one's come in. Um, And of people that think, oh, we'll do something about animals, not knowing the history of, you know, I talk to vegans of of activists. I've been vegan for 40 years, people like Patty Mark and and people that have, um, have gone back many, many years 
And they've seen this come and go and come and go. But I think the last mm. three years, particularly, where we've had, may I say, a deliberate breaking down and resetting of society, it has resulted in the, the vegan who has opened their eyes about one level of abuse, almost to shut down about others. And that has been a, a huge bewilderment to us, would you say? Is that, how is that possible? As someone who sees through the veil of what 99% of the population don't see, they right. can't see that. Instead of saying, well, this is what's happening, is, well, what is happening? And this, why would I go back to the very industries and political bodies that have been lying to me about food that's killing me and causing so much suffering and degradation of our the oceans and our environments is right. why would I believe though about something you know that that at first the virus exists you know that's a whole debate in itself of course right right yeah it's it really has been baffling to me to see to see all of all of these people who've distrusted big pharma for for decades now suddenly believe that they you know big pharma has our best interests at heart and this whole idea of, you know, to me, veganism is about liberation and freedom and autonomy and, you know, personal choice. And the idea that, like, I, I still remember the day when I mentioned civil liberties and had, had people look at me just in horror. And I realized, wow, using the term civil liberties has become taboo. You know, it's when, when did that happen? How did that happen? So it's, it's it's very strange to me. I mean, did you see this coming? In any no, way? I thought that actually, gosh, this was our opportunity to actually say, you know, what else don't we know here? And actually, you know, I've spoken out quite a bit on this and said to people, you know, if you look at the film Dominion, for example, there's a phrase there at the end that says, this is what we do to animals. We take away their freedom. We take about their babies and we take their lives and I've said to people, do you think there's a bit of a parallel with what is happening here now? You know, to, but it's interesting. I think a lot of it has been fear. A lot of it is absolute conformity. Is right. actually uh, wanting right. to belong in a certain group. Right. And I think there's many reasons for that. And there's many models that we can apply to actually look at this. But to literally, I've seen the animals thrown under the bus, I have to say. You know, I've seen people justify the animal testing the bovine fetal right. serum, the amniotic fluid that is present right. in vaccines and actually right. say, yeah, but I'll, I must do that so that we can keep advocating. And I say, that's like fornicating for virginity. This is ridiculous. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Although that's, that's at least more fun, right? <laughs> <laughs> but true. I, yeah, I remember a, a vegan friend of mine here in Nashville and he, he was a friend saying to me that some vegan organization had issued a statement saying, oh, the fact that these products have been tested on animals and that animals have been, you know, exploited and, and killed and tortured in the making of this product, didn't mean it's not vegan. It's still okay to, for vegans to use. It was, you know, and I remember him telling me this with a straight face and, and me saying, I don't, I don't take orders from an organization that tells me what is vegan and what is not. I, I have my own yes. conscience and, you know, vegan is, is a word it's, it's a convenient description, but really I'm, I use that word only because it describes my 
you know, <laughs> refusal to be complicit in, you know, the exploit exploitation and, and torture of non-human animals. And so just because some organization tells me, oh, well, it's okay in this instance, doesn't mean I'm going to accept that. It's, oh, it was so very nice. strange. It's very strange. I'm still, yeah, making sense of it. How has it been for you in Australia? I know you, you kind of really had some of the most extreme, you know, materializations of this this totalitarian authoritarian you know <laughs> uh, yes. rule in in the name of protecting us from a virus yes it, well it's been uh, melbourne particularly was the most locked down city in the world and funny enough i was there recently i was only there two weeks ago the first time in about four years the energy of the place is gone the mm. um the businesses that have been lost the the it was always a fun sort of place a very cultural place a lot of um but that's changed dramatically. Um, like all of us around the world, I think we observed, um, I'm gonna call it the polarization, which is kind of what was happening, is there were people that from the beginning went, no, this doesn't feel right. Let me do a bit of homework. No, no, I've done half an hour's homework. This is this is nonsense. Um, other people that, oh my gosh, we're gonna die of a, a deadly virus. So we must you know, do everything that you know, um, the authorities tell us to do to keep us safe. And then there was the go along to get along. So I'll wear a mask if you want me to, or do what you want, but you want me to wear it sort of thing. And of course, that's a very dangerous place, that one in the middle, because if not you, then who? And if not now, when, when, you know? And I think it's been very difficult for someone who, who says, no, this doesn't seem right. And even if there was a deadly virus, um, which I say we could spend a whole thing on do viruses actually exist and terrain theory and germ theory. We'd spend a lot of time talking about those. But even if they did, that whole thing of this relinquishing of our responsibility to some authority power that says they know better than us. You know, as David Icke says, humanity, get off your knees. You know, where is the, and then, then the polarization, the inability for people to, to sit and, galvanize any critical thought to even have the conversation and I think that's been really concerning what I have looked at quite extensively is what we call psychological nudges and the absolute indoctrination of a nation to be the words the phrases the fears the constant the shaming of course the fact that you're killing granny the if you're not part of this you must be against it this was a a, a wonderful global effort to change and reset the whole world and so personally and i will say it publicly and i have never worn a mask i've never social distanced and i carried on my life i didn't use my office in sydney because nobody wanted to come in but i refused to do this um and that doesn't make me any better or stronger but it just means you just say no right, you know? and, right. and i think then I, I feel i can live with myself we haven't got time to discuss it now, but I've got an article coming out. I recently um, broke a bone in my body and I was doing a, I was in a, a gardening accident. And as the surgeon who I eventually saw said to me, um, anybody would have done this. You cannot fall with force, do a karate chop on a six foot plank of wood and get an arm trapped without doing this. And um, the long and the short of it, it was an enormous 35 hour journey to get treatment in a hospital 
and still stand my ground about not wearing a mask, not social distancing and not being vaccinated. Oh, and I was treated boy. in the car park in the pouring rain with oh. an orthopedic surgeon begging the staff to let me in because I was such a danger to everyone. And they, like the guards on the prison, they would not let me in because I wouldn't wear a flimsy bit of paper over. And we're talking about three months ago. We're not talking two years ago. Wow. But wow. what was powerful is I eventually got treatment in another hospital and after enormous amount of pushback and, and having to quote a lot of things to them, but how it was the most frightening thing because I could have lost my hand. It was, they said it was going to go gangrenous. Um, the most frightening and yet the most empowering mm. because when we really stand up and we say no, I would do it for animals. I would stand and I have stood, stood at the slaughterhouse floor, not floor, I have been, but in, at the door. And so why wouldn't I do that for myself? <laughs> right. What would I be afraid of? And how could I live with myself if there was so much more at stake to sort of, and this is the how easily we give in. Well, I really need my hands sorted, so I'll just do it just for this. Right. The cost to me and the message and the helping others to stand up would have been much greater. In the same way, when people justify I mean, many people have taken, it's not a vaccine, an mRNA gene altering therapy. They've taken it because they've had to make this awful choice between feeding their children and something else. That is a completely different journey, which I can only imagine how hard, and I, I do know people have made that. But for the vegan to justify that it is okay to use animals to whatever way we do it it's a speciesist activity if you didn't need to do it if you could still put food on the table you haven't even got that is how could we then say but i'm doing it for the animals we have to admit our speciesism that ultimately that person put themselves before the animal and all we can do is make those decisions ourselves and speak our truth and that's what i've tried to do i guess but if we want we can't be half pregnant here. <laughs> we either believe in cruelty and superiority or we don't. And apart from the fact that I think we've been mercilessly duped into believing something that actually doesn't exist. Um, right. But is there to reset our society. And, and as you know, and I know we've had a conversations before, this isn't just opinion. This is written in plain sight, the desire of what is, is planned to happen but it's encouraging people to step into that anxiety in the same way of, you know, when they do about, you know, no longer eating animals and the traditions they had. It's a journey, but gosh, is it a journey worth having because you can live with meaning and purpose and live with your values intact, which I think is the best. Each of us have to examine that and, and live accordingly. Right. Right. It's yeah, it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating process. There's a, there's so much more, there's so much more to explore and so much more I would love to discuss. So we can, we can save that for another time, but, but I mean, I congratulate you and, you know, give you lots of appreciation and respect for, you know, standing in truth and standing in courage on the other side of the world. I was doing my best to do the same, you know, here in Nashville, I didn't, I didn't face the same situation with a medical situation where I was being, you know, put, put in that same situation. But, um, yeah, I, I felt the same way, you know, I can't participate in this charade, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to dignify it by, by going yes. along. I just, you know, it's, it seems ridiculous, um, mm -hmm. to me, um, 
Claire, I'm curious whether you plan to write a book about what's been happening these past few years. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Um, I do know there are some very good books coming out soon, which can't be spoken of because people are in the middle of writing them. <laughs> and then um, we have some masterpiece. We have a masterpiece coming out that I certainly know about. Um, and you may know about as well. I don't. But... I don't think I know. <laughs> well, watch this space. But it's um, it's not one that I'm going to write. What I am very interested in is it's really is using this opportunity now it's all sort of bubbled through and a lot of people you ask what was happening in australia so many people think things are back to normal and this is just the time you know we have our first supermarkets where you cannot enter them without um qr codes and identification there are no people there there are supermarkets with no people on the desks you know, oh, nothing to see here. It's all convenient. We'll just tap our phone and be surveilled all the way through. So we're in, living in a very dangerous time when people feel um, everything's gone back to normal. And it certainly hasn't. Right. And I feel a lot of pushback. I'm seeing a lot of people move into eating 100% uh, meat diets because they've woken up about something. And then they're saying, well, Bill Gates is not going to tell me what to eat. And so I, right. do, you know, so we're seeing this lack right. of pushing against as opposed to sitting in one's truth. So will I be writing about this? I think there's something bubbling in the background but okay. let's, um, okay. to use this opportunity. But I, you know, when it comes to me, I'm sure it'll uh, hopefully take only 10 weeks. But <laughs> <laughs> that was the first version, by the way. So please don't um, give me too much praise that it was all done and dusted. I can assure you it wasn't in that short time. That's amazing. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing just your wisdom and your experience and your courage and all of your just really interesting thoughts. It's it's really been existential for sure. <laughs> um, one last question that I like to pose to all of my guests is whether there's a partic particular word that for you sums up what being vegan is all about. There are many words, and I'm sure that's the first thing you hear from people. But <laughs> one that came into my mind was integrity. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. And in fact, I don't think anyone I've heard anyone choose that one on the on the show. So I relate to that a lot, and just a lot of the things you've shared about that. I don't think there's anything particularly noble about being vegan, about not hurting animals if we don't have to. But at the same time, I do feel just, you know, that act allows me to look myself in the mirror <laughs> yes, and just yeah. maintain a modicum of, of self-respect. Oh, so. I absolutely, do you know, I agree with you. It's nothing special being vegan. It just brings us back to ground zero. It really, right. where we should have right. started. And then, right. you know, what are we going to do? We just, right. there's nothing to give up, is there? You just have to stop taking what was never yours. Yes, yes. And to continue questioning and continue seeking truth, you know, and, and just continuing, you know, doing our best to alleviate whatever sort of suffering that we see in the world. So, so thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure having you. And um, we close every episode by taking 30 seconds of, of silence for all of the suffering animals, human and non-human, who desire, as we all do, safety, happiness, and the freedom to live out their lives without interference. So Claire, I invite you to join me in 30 seconds of silence for the animals, and we'll conclude with the sound of the bell.
Thank you, Claire. And thank you, Posse. See you next time. Until then, stay strong and stay true.